one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 912, for the week of Monday, October 2nd, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Evening, Sawyer. It's uh, October 4th as we record this, so happy 60th anniversary to the beginning of the Space Age. Yes, indeed. 60 years ago to the date of this recording on October 4th. Back in 1957, Sputnik 1 launched, becoming the first man-made satellite and launching the space race as we know it today. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, and dare I ask, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, well there's just a few satellites right now, but uh, that number is about to increase drastically over the next 7 to 10 days or so. And that's where we're going to start off with our regular launch roundup. So... Uh, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, most of these will be in space. The first of those being an Atlas V rocket. That'll be an Atlas V-421, meaning four meter fairing, two solid rocket boosters, and one Centaur second stage engine. That is scheduled to launch out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station at 4.07 a.m. Eastern Time from Slick 41. It will be carrying the NROL-52 satellite for the National Reconnaissance Office. This after about just a week ago, the NROL-42 mission successfully made its launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. Yeah, and sir, that was the 25th successful launch for uh, the uh, National Reconnaissance Office uh, for uh, that uh, United Launch Alliance put together. So hats off to, to ULA for that. Exactly. It was a beautiful late night slash early morning, depending on which coast you were, launch out of Vandenberg, the last one. And that was a 541 configuration. At, after a short delay, that went off without a hitch, and they're aiming to do the same again, although weather might be an issue. But again, hopefully by the time this episode is out, that will be successfully in space. But anyway, it's not just uh, ULA. We're going with our Atlas V out of Cape Canaveral two days later. Currently scheduled for October 7th. Quick post-recording update here, now October 11th. SpaceX is scheduled to launch the SES-11 mission slash Echo Star 105. That Falcon 9 will be launching from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center with a launch window scheduled for between 6.53 and 8.53 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 22.53 and 0.53 GMT. The Falcon that will be used for this launch will be a previously flown first stage, last flown, if I recall correctly, on, well, SES-10. And that's not it for SpaceX. But wait, there's more. If you order now, you get another SpaceX launch two days later. 
On October 9th, another Falcon 9 is scheduled to launch, this one out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. This will be the second time that SpaceX is going for the two or so day turnaround between two different launch sites with the same rocket. This Falcon 9 will be carrying the Iridium Next satellite and, well, not satellite, satellites. The Iridium Next network is launched in groups of 10. This one will be launching satellites number 21 through 30 to join the other ones that a Falcon 9 had previously launched. That is scheduled to launch again October 9th at 8.37 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 5.37 a.m. Pacific Time, where it will be launching from, and 12.37 GMT. You think that's it? Uh-uh. There's more. October 9th is a busy space day. In addition to the Falcon launching, we also have China and Japan scheduled to launch. A Long March 2D rocket will be sending the Venezuelan remote sensing satellite into space from Zhuquan, China. That is scheduled to launch 12.10 a.m. Eastern, which is 4.10 GMT. And Japan is scheduled to launch an H-2A rocket out of the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. That will be carrying another one of its communications satellites, the Michibiki-4. That H-2A rocket is scheduled to lift off at approximately 6 p.m. Eastern Time, or 2200 GMT. But wait, there's more! It continues! This is probably the busiest launch roundup in Talking Space history. Because on October 12th, a very important mission is scheduled to launch, and that is a Soyuz launching out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan that will be carrying the Progress 68P resupply vehicle to the International Space Station. Scheduled to launch October 12th at 5.32 a.m. Eastern Time, 9.32 GMT. But there's more! <laughs> On October 13th, a Rakot rocket... Yes, that, that's right. <laughs> it's scheduled to launch the European Space Agency's Sentinel-5P spacecraft. This is an Earth-observing satellite that will be used to measure air quality, ozone, pollution, and aerosols in the Earth's atmosphere. That is scheduled to launch October 13th at 5.27 a.m. Eastern Time, 9.27 GMT, out of the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia, not Kazakhstan. I think we're good for now. The next launch after that isn't until four days later. So that should cover us for a while. There's going to be a quiz, by the way, at the end of the show. So I hope everybody took notes. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> but this, and again, I, as we just had our eight-year anniversary last month, I still think back to uh, after the shuttle program ended, having conversations of, boy, I don't know if we're going to have any space news to cover or any launches or anything like that. And uh, boy, look at this. Uh, <laughs> and again, best of luck to the Atlas V, to the two upcoming Falcon launches, the Long March, the H-2A, the Soyuz with the Progress Resupply Vehicle, and the Rockout with the Sentinel mission. Best of luck to all of those. And again, we hope for all their success. So one of those launches in particular is going to be very important, as I noted, and that was the resupply vehicle going up to the International Space Station, the Soyuz Progress 68P, currently scheduled for October 12th. The next resupply mission after that now has a date, and that is the Orbital ATK-OA-8 mission that is now scheduled to launch November 10th out of Launchpad 0A at Wallops Island, Virginia, but that will be carrying a Cygnus resupply vehicle on board the Antares rocket, no longer aboard an Atlas V. 
Yeah, the rest of the uh, flyout for, I believe, the uh, current uh, commercial contract, the commercial cargo contract for Orbital ATK, the rest of the flyouts will be on Antares. So Atlas V is still in the back pocket. You know, there still might be some possibilities there depending on uh, on what the customer wants to do, meaning, you know, NASA, a.k.a. the American taxpayer. But uh, at, the, at least for the um, foreseeable future right now, Antares will be in the uh, in the capper bird seat and in command taking uh taking cygnus for a ride launch is scheduled for 802 a.m eastern time there is a launch time for that the service module for the 08 was delivered out of the dulles virginia facility on today's recording date october 4th and fun fact according to the orbital atk twitter this will be the heaviest launch weight ever for the Antares at 7,400 pounds of cargo. If anybody is, is uh, interested, there's some really, really nice photographs of the uh, Cygnus service module being serviced and prepared uh, so it can be mated to the uh, pressurized module out at Wallops. So to take a look. So we'll be excited for that. And uh, it's good that they're getting all these resupply uh runs coming up especially since there have been some issues lately with the space station and in fact uh we've got some spacewalks coming up in the next few days to help work on some repairs right gene there will be an eva the first of three evas it'll be uh set to uh to uh, tackle some repairs on the international space station uh most of these repairs are going to be geared toward uh canada arm 2 uh, they're going to be replacing an end effector on that arm. Uh, so that that's essentially the purpose of the first two spacewalks. That, uh, again, will be starting at about 7.10 tomorrow morning. Um, NASA Television is going to be covering that live. EVA or extravehicular activity is planned for six hours, 30 minutes. But you know how that, that goes. That could go either you know left or right, depending on how fast the crew uh, goes ahead and uh, uh, gets the work done, and uh, the last couple of EVAs, the the uh, the team out there had really worked rather smartly and and gotten uh, the work done very very fast, and they were able to get some get ahead tasks done for the next EVAs that they had in mind. So uh, you know, again, I, I kind of anticipate the same thing, but you never know with uh, with when it comes to mechanicals. If anybody's, we've brought this analogy up before, if anybody's worked on a car or anything like that, uh, there's always something that goes ahead and bites you. So um, I'm sure uh, uh, folks on the ground are prepared for all contingencies. And uh, there was a really good uh, um, press conference, uh, I guess it was just a couple of days ago, uh, that's available out there on YouTube if anybody wants to go ahead and take a look at that. Yeah, that it really, really goes into the, the nitty-gritty as far as what the uh, the whole uh, um, EVA is supposed to be all about. So go ahead, and I'd probably welcome you to go ahead and take a look at that. Exactly. And, of course, best of luck to the crew that will be going out there, which I believe will be astronauts Randy Bresnik and Mark Vandehei. And that would be Mark Vandehei's first ever spacewalk as well. Yep. So it's going to be uh, fun to watch and Excited to see uh, station always up and running at full capacity. Uh, speaking of full capacity on board the space station with the uh, current crew up there of six, uh, they've had some extra room recently with the beam module, which has been up on the space station for over a year now. Uh, according to a NASA press release released on October 2nd, NASA is exploring options with Bigelow Airspace, the company that made the beam module, to extend the life of their Bigelow expandable activity module. 
Yeah, it looks that way, Sawyer. Uh, I was actually kind of kind of not exactly surprised to see that because it, uh, from what um, reports have been, the module's been performing like a champ throughout its entire lifetime thus far. And uh, uh, it looks like because of because of the performance of the uh, expandable module. Notice a lot of I'm not I'm saying expandable, not inflatable. So I know uh, the Bigelow folks hate the term inflatable. There, um, it, it because of the performance of the uh, vehicle, it looks like they're they're going to be ex- extending it. Um, extending the the time on on the ISS. This is just sort of a uh, also a lead on to um, for other possibilities that Beam might be able to to do later on, or at least an expandable module on on the ISS. Because I know they want to go ahead and uh, as soon as Beam departs, they want to go ahead and see if they can put on a uh, a full up uh, inflatable module as a as a uh, precursor, perhaps to a commercial space station on uh on iss so uh we'll, we're gonna be watching this kind of close uh i know it was um filled um for according to the press release here filled uh, for a, a two-year uh period of time to kind of validate the performance of the spacecraft but uh so far it looks like they may have to uh it looks like it's it's been doing quite well and um, Bigelow is also going to be able to continue, um, as I said before, is going to be con- because of this, they're going to continue to give them opportunities to demonstrate this technology further. And uh, it'll be exciting to watch and see how this uh, how this plays out with uh, with Bigelow. Uh, so I know there's other alternatives out there. And so there's going to be a lot of players in this field uh, that. Uh, uh, NASA is 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 going to be watching very closely. That are they want to probably get involved with some of the ISS happenings, but also there are folks out there that want to start their own commercial space station in low Earth orbit, which is what kind of NASA's hoping will start all of this new technology and all these these technologies like you know the the expandable expandable modules and what have you. They are going to be playing a part in low Earth orbit uh, commercially going forward, and of course, the expandable modules may play a part in uh, exploring Mars or even any other uh, future endeavors as that we'll talk about a little later. But yeah, this is this is something that NASA is really really pushing for and really wants to get off the ground, which is you know turn low Earth orbit over to commercial industry, uh, let a a new um, theater or commerce start in low earth orbit and let nasa go back to doing what it does really really well which is exploration so we'll we'll just brace yourself there's there's opportunities coming oh yeah absolutely i mean the uh the private sector is going to get really interesting and uh we're going to talk a little bit more about the private sector in just a moment but you mentioned something interesting there about how nasa's goal is to continue exploration and uh, that's where they're supposedly going next. Um, it's a good chance, if you follow Space News, that you saw an article that said that NASA and Russia are getting ready to build a space station together around the moon. Well, if you've heard that, you got half the story, right? There is indeed a plan to build an orbital facility around the moon called the Deep Space Gateway. In a letter released by NASA and signed as well by Russia, they are talking about putting an outpost there, but... 
it's not necessarily a joint effort between the two. Dean, can you help clarify what this uh, Deep Space Gateway is going to be? Yeah, so the Deep Space Gateway is right now, it's it's notional, but it, it's, it's probably going to be the next step that we're going to embark on. What it hopefully will be become will be a jumping off point, not just for possible you know, lunar exploration, but also as a jump-off point for Mars at some point. And uh, it, what it will be essentially is a, as uh, Sawyer, you alluded to, a sort of kind of international space station, if you will, or a kind of s space station, if you will, but o only in lunar orbit rather than in orbit around Earth. This is also, I believe, the second step. If you take a look at the uh, the Journey to Mars uh, blueprint that uh, Bill Gerstenmeier has talked about a few times, uh, that is really, really the second step in, in the journey. They want to go ahead and have this deep space gateway or this, this small station, if you will, in orbit around the moon, kind of further going out into, uh, into space and, and getting our feet wet a little bit more. Um, and going into planetary, we haven't gone in a planetary with humans uh, for some time now. And there's a possibility, too, that this little port, if you will, could not only be a, a jump off place for the moon, but also a, a place where you can continue to do experiments and follow up experiments, the same kind that maybe you were doing on the uh, International Space Station, but uh, a little further out. But also it could become a, uh, a place where you could do telepresence on the moon. Basically, you have a you know, robotic uh, fleet on the lunar surface somewhere doing uh, geology or doing any type of digging or anything along those lines. And you can control those robotic uh, rovers or whatever from the deep, the deep Space Gateway. So there's a lot of possibilities for this thing. And again, it will be a permanently uh, piloted or permanently human-tended uh, place to work and, and so on. And it's also a target where the Orion spacecraft will go ahead and, and visit uh, and, and be able to go ahead and ferry crews back and forth from. Uh, it, but eventually they're hoping that this Deep Space Gateway will essentially be the embarkation point, if you will, for the Mars shot. Uh, somewhere in the 2030s, and uh, uh, it's kind of exciting. There, there, there are some concepts being looked at right now. I know Lockheed Martin's working on a concept to to get the contract to build this thing. I know Orbital ATK is also working on uh, a contract using the uh, using upgraded Cygnus modules, um, and Bigelow may also be in there as well. You know, to to uh, offer their services as far as using the expandable uh, modules there too. So we don't know really what the final config of this thing is going to be, but uh, uh, to clarify a few things that I, I kind of saw running around the internet and a lot of other um, mainstream media was reporting was that NASA and Russia had agreed to build this thing jointly. I read the, um, the statement Nowhere really in the statement does it say that NASA and Roscosmos have agreed to build this thing together. They've agreed to continue studying ways that might benefit both agencies and how this 
this con this deep space gateway might uh, be able to benefit Roscosmos or even ESA or JAXA or anybody else that wants to dive in on this. Um, but nowhere really does it say, oh, by the way, <laughs> we are going to build this thing jointly with Russia. I, I, I read this, the NASA statement three times to make sure, wait a minute, did I miss something somewhere? Because I remember reading it uh, the Tuesday night it, came, it was released. And I sat there and I was like, huh, okay, um, let me read this, this again and again and again. And I didn't see anything like that on there. And I'm like, okay, did I, you know, I, I thought again, did I miss something somewhere? And I wasn't the only one saying that either. It turned out to be that Space News was also kind of coming out and saying, no, that's not the case. Russia and the United States did not agree to build this thing jointly. But a lot of the mainstream media went nuts with this and basically said that NASA and, and, and Russia agreed to build this. In fact, it actually made the late night comedian rounds. So, again, this is one of the reasons why you got to really, really dig into the story, really, really read this uh, over and over again. And to be honest, this is what we do here. And we, we do the work so you don't have to, to, to just hopefully put that rumor to bed. No, NASA and Roscosmos did not agree to jointly build this thing. They agreed to kind of look into it and see if there were possibilities that both sides can possibly work together on maybe but they are not we're not building this with russia at least not yet so is the door open for that stay tuned but i have a feeling we'll probably do more um given the political climate and things like that going on i think think we'll probably invite a lot of the current partners that are with us on the iss and they'll get first dibs to help us out if they so desire at least that's what I think the way it's going to go. From what I remember reading in that NASA press release is they were talking about, um, Bill Gerstenmeier's quoted in there, you know, saying that they want to make it open for anyone and everyone to be able to use it and configure it how they need to do whatever they want with it to get more science. Uh, the one big thing I see, besides the fact that everyone I think will be a part of it, kind of like the space station, is the fact that it's going to have to get built. And this is, I think, where people were inferring that Russia is going to have a role in building it and becoming a part of it, is because NASA has said they will launch the SLS one time per year. So that means if their first flight is 2019, uh, their first test flight of EM-1, they want to start this around 2020, if they're talking about five or six segments, that's five or six years to get, you know, pieces up. And that's assuming that SLS stays on time and on budget and we all know that's most likely not going to happen as is. <laughs> so that leaves the only other countries that can really do heavy lift as um, Russia and China, which is most likely not going to be invited into it, and possibly Japan and maybe India. Again, most likely not going to be invited into it. But that's the issue is who's going to be able to have the capacity to launch pieces as big as, you know, ISS modules, which... Back in the day, there were two. It was the U.S. and Russia. And if the U.S., at least from SLS, is only able to do one a year, well, that leaves one other country at the moment to be able to lift the rest of it. Well, not really. If you'll take a look at uh, ESA and uh, Ariane 6, which should be also an operation, or even Ariane 5 at this point, that also, too, should be able to offer uh, some sort of lift there as far as uh, heavy lift capacity is concerned. True, I did forget about the area. Yeah, 
so um but uh yeah Ariane 5 should be able to to do it and uh it's uh, its successor Ariane 6 should also be able to uh to offer that kind of uh that kind of heavy lift if we want it uh right now the architecture from what i saw um is is more um sls centric but again you know that's subject to change without notice and right now russia does not have that heavy lift capacity they're building it or they we think they are because the uh, task uh, had uh, indicated that uh, russia is is going to make that decision on whether whether or not to go ahead with this this super heavy lift booster that they have in mind Keep in mind, though, that's going to cost money. And to be blunt, when it comes to Russia, I don't know where the money's going to come from. Um, so the the Russia's got a, a lot of plans. They have a they have they have a tendency to to really really want to do things, but the funding just isn't there. Yeah, I know it's a familiar story, but um, the Russian budget is I think it's something along the lines of eighteen or nineteen billion dollars, but that's over a ten year period grant you to roscosmos doesn't have the portfolio of work that say you know a nasa or or isa has but it, it's still kind of constraining uh in in what they want to do and so on i mean they, they're trying to build a, a replacement for soyuz the federation they're trying to to get new boosters up there they're trying to you know get this new spaceport up and going um and they're cash strapped so things will plot along okay and i think they're going to be able to follow through at least on some of this but on uh, for the budget they've got right now i i doubt it i mean yeah that's the other issue they're still trying to get their uh, next science module up to the iss and until then they're oh, down to yeah. two crew members <laughs> yeah well, there's that too Oh, don't get me started there nasa's not much better with their uh financial boats at the moment or at least getting their uh all their stuff up and ready to go, like SLS and all that. So it's, I I love the idea. I think it's a great idea to have a permanent presence that can be used multi-purpose, like you said, for remote vehicles on the surface, for countries to come in and do as they please to help do you know lunar science and uh, orbit around the moon. Uh, it's just a matter of how is it going to work monetarily, logistically, and cooperatively. Uh, and yeah. Hopeful that this uh, comes through and excited to see which countries are going to be the ones getting involved. Indeed, Sawyer. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but it's going to be an interesting one. Agreed. And, uh, well, <laughs> the one thing that was going through my head, and I hate to say this as we were talking about the delays and everything, is let's just hope this isn't as bad as uh, James Webb when it comes to delays. Because, uh... again, it sounds like it's going to be fantastic. And when it does go, it is going to be fantastic. But it's got to go. And, uh I was thinking that because of our next story as well, which is about the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, which it turns out uh, we had discussed a few episodes back that there was another launch, Bepi Colombo, that's scheduled to go in the exact same launch time frame as James Webb was. Uh, well, it, it's official now. That was the case, and as a result, that means the launch date was not going to stand. NASA recognized that, and James Webb Space Telescope is now officially delayed until spring of 2019. The plan is to launch at some time between March and June from French Guiana aboard an Ariane 5. Uh, it was originally targeted for that October 2018 date. 
Yeah, so another thing, too, that they were, I know there was some talk, too, about making sure that little odds and ends were together before putting it in the fairing and and giving it one final, you know, one final goodbye hug and kiss there before closing it up. So, because, uh, again, the, the this space telescope, it's not Hubble, okay? <laughs> this thing is going out to one of the Lagrange points which is not easily accessible. And you want to make really darn sure that all your I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, everything is is really, really happy with that spacecraft. Because once once that, that fairing door shuts, that's it. And I think, too, that there was some, some discussion about, well, let's just make sure that, that all of our ducks are in a row, too. So this gives them a little bit more time to make sure that things are okay and 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 things are, are really 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 good and they're going to have a have a healthy spacecraft. But yeah, Sawyer, I think we called it. I, I and uh, I know the reasons why um, the uh, Pepe Colombo probe has got a got a launch window and this is this it's really really a tight launch window. And you really want to make sure that 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 vehicle gets a chance to do do the science that it needs to do, and uh, I I can totally understand the the reason for the delay. Agreed. Again, one of them has a window to Mercury. The other, it says in the press release, is not going to affect the current science schedule in any way, uh, or the budget in any way by pushing it until 2019. So. It makes sense, and uh, again, we waited this long. We're going to keep on waiting uh, because the science that it will give us, being able to look back to some of the earliest moments of the universe, is going to be worth it. Plus, to have Hubble and James Webb going at the same time, just imagine the amount of science that will happen with that. So it's worth the wait. While we're talking about NASA and the James Webb Space Telescope and the upcoming plans for it and how it will fit in the budget and all that, uh, we've talked about the National Space Council coming back. In fact, we uh, had someone on who was a former member of the National Space Council. And if you take a look back to our ISSRDC episode, uh, you can hear him talk about his thoughts on the National Space Council. But this third iteration is set to have their first public meeting, and it will indeed be public in uh, Washington, D.C., and that is scheduled to happen on October 5th, which is the day after this recording date. Uh, what do you think, Gene, as this approaches? Uh, fingers crossed. Um, I'm. It, it, it's it's going to be a busy space day um, tomorrow, Thursday, October 5th. We're going to have the EVA going, and at the same time, uh, the, Nas- the National Space Council is going to start up its first meeting. Uh, NASA is going to provide live coverage of this, um, also, a couple other sources will as well. Uh, the first meeting is entitled Leading the Next Frontier, uh, an event with the National Space Council. It's going to be held at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Uh, the, uh, the annex there, the uh, uh, Udvar-Hazy uh, Center, it will be chaired by the vice president, uh, Mr. Mike Pence. Another... Um, Participant will be NASA's interim administrator, Robert Lightfoot, and a few of the uh, Trump administration cabinet members, senior officials, and so on. And a lot of movers and shakers in the um, aerospace industry will also be in attendance on this. 
There's uh, going to be um, a statement of um, space exploration goals um, that they hope, quote, engages all of the innovation of NASA and our partners, moves us forward toward national priorities, and excites people all around the world, close quote. And that's a quote from uh, Mr. Robert Lightfoot. The uh, council, according to the press release that I'm looking at, will hear uh, expert testimony from witnesses who represent the sectors uh, of the space industry, civil, space, commercial, and national security. Um, so what am I going to expect? I don't know what to expect from this first meeting, to be blunt, Sawyer. I think this is just going to be sort of laying the groundwork of what they want to do going forward. I think there's just going to be a lot of discussion, a lot of preliminary talks. I don't think a lot's going to get done on, on this first meeting. Usually, you know, picture your first day of work. You're just basically getting, you know, your, your lay of the land. You're not really doing a lot of, you're not really accomplishing a lot. Um, but you're just kind of laying down the ground rules and what you want to accomplish. But what actually gets done it's going to be a different story. I kind of wonder, too, if this is going to be um, the hallmark of, of, the, uh, of the Space Council to go ahead and broadcast their meetings over the Internet uh, for people to go ahead and, and watch and to, and to uh, uh, be very, very public about some of the meetings and some of the goings-on. I'm hoping that is the case, that this is going to be a transparent process, that we're going to be watching the sausage made. Sometimes it's not pretty, as uh, uh, a, a lot of folks can attest to if they've ever sat through some of the NASA hearings and, and some of the other NASA events, uh, including, you know, like the NASA Advisory Council and so on. Uh, sometimes it gets kind of detailed. Sometimes it gets a little brain-numbing. But it's it's also a critical part of, well, getting the sausage made when it comes to space policy. And I kind of wish we had uh, Kat Robeson here with us to go ahead and, and kind of find out what she's expecting from all of this. That's one of the things I, I can't wait to get back to her on because, she, again, she was covering the uh, um, the IAC for us, and I'm really eager to hear some of her insights from that, but I'm also eager to hear what she has to say about the first meeting, and I'm sure she's going to be watching this uh, as intently as uh, as we will here. Agreed, and I'll be honest, I hope that they all get broadcast. To have this kind of openness is great, and it's being broadcast on NASA TV, too, so it's not like it's you know hidden away on C-SPAN 6 or something like that, right. which is uh, also nice. It's open to everyone on the internet, and Honestly, I'm okay with it just being an opening meeting of setting what their plans are, what the goals are, because right now we don't know any of that. I mean, all we have to work off is the people that we've spoken to who, you know, have said, here's what we hope happens, and the past experience of the first and second iterations. We don't know what this third iteration is planning on yet. We know nothing about it. So I feel like before we ever delve into policy, we need a, all right, here's our plan, and they're going to talk about, you know, uh, commercial space. Uh, private space they're going to talk about nasa's governmental space and uh you know all the stuff that needs to be discussed to lay it out of all right here's what everyone wants from this council and hopefully we'll get a better idea of what they're going to do and hopefully that'll give us an idea of how they're going to do it as well yeah sir to, just just to clarify i wasn't being critical on on that one i i was actually you know stating fact because that's the way 
I would I would sort of anticipate this this first hearing to go. It will indeed be very interesting to see. Now, one thing that they mentioned in the press release for the uh, upcoming National Space Council event is they'll be hearing from all different types of agencies, including some of the private space companies, to hear uh, what's on their mind and what they're hoping. Uh, and it seems like uh, some of those space companies are going to be coming together a little more than we thought. Of course, we have uh, SpaceX, we have United Launch Alliance, and there's Orbital ATK. Those are the three big names. Well, it seems like uh, Northrop Grumman has taken note of the fact that Orbital ATK is one of those big ones and has decided to acquire them. Northrop Grumman officially announced that they will be acquiring Orbital ATK for $9.2 billion dollars. So that was announced a little bit earlier last month, September 18th. The official press release went out from both Northrop Grumman and Orbital ATK. Um, what do you think of this merger? I mean, this is if this officially goes through, it's huge. Yeah, the the um, the the whole acquisition, if it's going to be approved by regulators right now, I don't see any impediments to to that and also the the stockholders uh on both sides also have, have to approve it northrop gets um orbital atk's small satellite division at a time where the pentagon's kind of looking at small sats anyway so in that aspect i think it's going to be kind of lucrative also, I believe Orbital ATK builds uh, several systems that are being used right now in defense because of the, the situation in North Korea. I think Orbital ATK builds several systems that, are, that would be pivotal in the defense of, say, the United States West Coast or a um, U.S. protectorate or even a, um, a U.S. ally in the event something does get launched their way. You know, that's another play that I think uh, Northrop Grumman wants because there's obviously because of the political situation, there's going to be some money made to be made there. Um, also, I think Northrop Grumman really wants in on a piece of the action on the launch business. And as this audience is well aware of, Orbital ATK is uh, looking at building a... Um, another booster that would be something equivalent to the Falcon 9 or uh, or the Atlas V um, or Vulcan to compete with those those vehicles, and they are uh, consulting with the United States Air Force in that in that endeavor, and I believe uh, Northrop Grumman wants in on that. And what better way of of getting in on the ground floor of that opportunity rather than going ahead and going through all the research to build your own booster than to buy somebody that's already designing one. And that's another benefit that um, Northrop Grumman's going to get out of this, plus the the satellite servicing division that Orbital ATK has. They're going to get on the ground floor of that one, too, Um so there's a lot going on. Plus, of course, they get the uh, commercial cargo uh, contracts with, with NASA and uh, um, any other opportunities that may come, ar come around with the Cygnus spacecraft. As we've talked a little bit on this program, Cygnus is also a, they're, they're looking at other, other ways to use the Cygnus spacecraft as a, as a CubeSat launcher or even as a... Uh, as a tended uh, autonomous experiment vehicle. 
where um, everything is, is controlled from the ground. If you have an experiment you want to fly uh, in, into space and you can control it from the ground, they'll, they'll, they may be able to go ahead and rent out a Cygnus vehicle for you to do it. So there are other there are other commercial possibilities there, and above all, what does Orbital ATK get out of this? I think they get uh, they get number one a lot of capital um, to do a lot of the work that they want to do, which is you know again the um, the uh, satellite servicing missions. Um, I believe they want to get that system up online um, by the end of of this year and actually fly it next year or at least the first spacecraft they want to go ahead and at least fly it and test it and see if it works, it actually starts giving that service out to uh, to companies that want that kind of service where they, they can, you can go ahead and refuel a, a, a satellite that might be running out of fuel and extending its life. So that that's another, another deal that I think Northrop Grumman wants into. And um, Orbital ATK is looking for capital to continue that kind of work. Something that entered my mind, though, is it also a protection move? Because SpaceX is turning into the 800-pound gorilla in the room, like it or not, and with their space launch capabilities. One of the key questions that keeps coming up in a lot of the, uh, the press conferences is the commercial viability for Antares beyond launching Cygnus for these uh, these cargo flights. And we keep, I know there's a lot of us in the press that keep asking about, you know, is there going to be a possibility of using Antares outside of Cygnus? Is, can it launch other things outside of Cygnus? Antares is like sort of the equivalent and, and of, of the Delta II, which is was being kind of phased out by, by ULA. And I believe that its penultimate flight is coming up too in, in the distant future. So... I, I know there's there's some questions about about Antares as a as a as a launch platform going forward. This might give Antares some further uh, push, if you will, for possible you know even even CubeSat missions uh, to launch to launch CubeSats. It might go ahead and, and give uh, give this thing a little bit more visibility. So and and some yeah dare I say some financial protection too. So is it is it is it beneficial to um, Northrop Grumman? <laughs> Absolutely. Is it beneficial to Orbital ATK? I'd have to say on the outset, probably. I have to dig dig a little deeper and and do some some more homework on that. But um, my thought is, yeah, it's probably beneficial for them too. If if this gets through the SEC, you know, the the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, and if both um, companies and stockholders approve, I, I think they're going. You're going to have a pretty interesting powerhouse to deal with going forward. And it it it. I, I mean, it's it's not going to break SpaceX's bank, but it's going to give them. It may give them a run for the money. So we'll just have to see how things go for the future on this one. My thought is is that Northrop Grumman is known for their military and defense uh, systems as well, and you know they've got some space systems as well. But besides the fact this will increase their space portfolio, do you think maybe that will give a new life to Antares and some of the other orbital ATK vehicles like Pegasus and things, possibly launching Northrop Grumman military satellites? Possibly. I mean, anything anything's possible. 
you know, again, you, you may be onto something there, my friend. That's why they keep me around and pay me the no bucks here. <laughs> oh, but I'm bummed. That's one partnership, or I guess merger. Uh, apparently, there's another partnership that's in the works. And Mark, you were the one that brought this up with Sierra Nevada Corporation and who? Canadian Space Agency. Stumbled across this just before we started recording, actually, that uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Canadian Space Agency. And they're going to explore possibilities of using the Dream Chaser spacecraft for future CSA missions. Uh, they're also going to have a method uh, with this agreement to exchange information between Sierra Nevada Corporation and Canada. This is significant in that it allows some greater collaboration, uh, technologies, applications that are mutually beneficial for both Sierra Nevada, Canadian space industry, and academia. So um, be interesting to see where this goes. It is something that's just at its uh, beginning stages with talking about Dream Chaser and CSA. But uh, it's just a cool spacecraft. You know, we've all uh, heard about it, seen the, uh, the graphics of it, watched the development of it, seen the changeover from a competitor in the commercial crew to be in a cargo, which is uh, destined to fly to carry cargo to station in 2020 and 2021. Um, they've got six flights, I believe, scheduled for that. And uh, it's just a cool spacecraft that, uh, you know, we want to see succeed. I like the idea that not all the eggs will be in one basket. And I I'm also find a lot of appeal to the fact that We've got a uh, U.S. Uh, industry that's going to be in collaboration with a another international uh, player in the space business. Exactly. I mean, we've talked to Sierra Nevada before, and they were excited to actually start flying. There were talks to discuss that with the U.N., and none of that's really ever come to fruition. Uh, to finally hear them partnering with the space agency, like Canadian Space Agency, is, uh, I mean, it's fantastic. Like you mentioned, it, it's a great vehicle. Uh, it just lost out when it came to the uh, commercial crew contracts uh, with NASA, and so they thought that was going to be the end of their uh, crew vehicle, and, you know, there's still the uh, cargo version, but it's nice to hear this partnership and to get to see them working with another space agency and hopefully uh, get some more Canadian payloads up. Yeah, and, and let's not forget, too, uh, Boeing made the announcement uh, earlier, I guess it was uh, last week, that it looks like uh, CST-100 Starliner uh, is going to be pushed into 2019 for first flight. So this coming on, on the heels of that, uh, interesting little story. And I am I know ESA, too, is very, very interested in Dream Chaser as well. So Dream Chaser as a piloted vehicle, it ain't dead yet. <laughs> And and I know they are looking at it as a cargo vehicle for for NASA, but you gotta think, you know, is is this something that NASA may have in its back pocket? You think, guys? Well, you got to keep in mind the complexities that we've heard about with Boeing and with uh, SpaceX of human rated, and when you get to Heading in that direction, it's a whole another level of complexity and safety that's required. So, certainly possible, and they've, I'm sure they've done a lot of the groundwork for that. How soon could it uh, 
take off and resume, you know, that application in that direction? That'd be an interesting question to uh, to see. It, hopefully uh, a problem that Sierra Nevada would like to have. I, I'm with Mark on this one. Uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes once, you know, everything gets man-rated and flying. And, uh, but I mean, they had their carry test recently. They're moving along. And uh, I remember at uh, one of the ISS conferences, they were giving away their crewed vehicle because, oh, we don't know if we're going to be flying it anytime soon. Sounds like that might change. I'm excited. Makes two, so it's going to be kind of interesting to to watch this. And I, I, you know, grab the popcorn, gang. It's going to get real interesting. So, uh, Kat Robinson has been covering the IAC for us, the International Astronomical Congress, which this year was held in Adelaide, Australia. Next episode, we will have a full wrap up on that, and that is super exciting. But there is one story from IAC that cannot wait, and that we've all been chomping at the bit to discuss. Oh. And that was the Friday talk by Elon Musk. It was about 2 o'clock local time in the afternoon, which I stayed up at 12.30 a.m. Eastern time to uh, watch that, that Friday morning. And Elon announced the BFR. Forget Falcon 9. Forget Falcon Heavy. Forget Red Dragon. Crew Dragon. All of that is gone. And in its place now is this rocket that has yet to be named. It uh, it has a uh, code name, but people really don't care as much about the code name, which I believe was Beerfire. Instead, everyone is calling it by its initials BFR. Uh, we, for the sake of our clean rating here on iTunes and Google Play, will call it the Big Freakin' Rocket. Although, <laughs> although on the SpaceX website, it is listed as the Big falcon rocket but no one's really calling it that they're all going for the big freaking rocket again we'll say (laughs) there were quite a few announcements as part of this the first one as mentioned just now was that all of the previous line of spacex vehicles are to be obsolete and from the sound of it he's hoping to make all other space vehicles obsolete including sls and uh, things like that this will be able to carry large payloads to low earth orbit or numerous amounts of small payloads in addition it should be able to dock to the international space station it should be able to help build a lunar base with refueling only in earth orbit and to set up a base on the moon both cargo and people uh with a little bit of uh in situ resource utilization or using the surface to help recreate fuel to get it back Elon is hoping to have the first cargo flight of that BFR going to Mars by 2022 with the first crewed flights and two more resupply vehicles going in 2024. The other big announcement is that it wouldn't just be used for space travel, but also for Earth travel, possible a point-to-point travel. In the video in the presentation, it showed the BFR launching from the waters just off of New York City, landing less than an hour later in Shanghai, China, and with the ability to fly between any two major cities in the world in under an hour. Now, there's a lot that was not answered, but we know that when it is crewed, this will be able to carry up to about 100 people with 40 crew cabins. We're talking less than the original 42 engines. We're now down only into the upper 30s when it comes to the amount of engines on this thing. And uh, some very comical-looking graphics, in my personal opinion, of this thing docked to the ISS, which just looks so 
unnatural. But the other major point that he tried to make with this is that with its reusability factor and everything going along with it, this should be the cheapest rocket on the market. And that includes going from Saturn V, Delta Heavy, including even his Falcon 9 and Falcon 9 Heavy, Falcon 1. It's supposedly going to be cheaper than all of those. And again, to Mars in five years. Thoughts? <laughs> oh, where do I begin? Um, I'll throw a, a question out. Does anybody on the panel, first off, believe that that is going to happen within the timeline specified? Because if I recall, Musk basically said five years is, you know, too long in his, his, his eyes. <laughs> okay, I'm not changing direction, but the comment that I believe that uh, Elon made about the Falcon 9 Heavy and that he would be happy to have the uh, first launch not destroy the pad. So what's going to happen with a BFR? You know, where do we go from there? Are we talking about a launch or are we talking about degree of destruction? Very fair point. Um, I asked the same question on Twitter and uh, I got one response that summed it up very well. It was literally a, uh, a chart showing the expected dates of Falcon Heavy and the actual dates of progress of Falcon Heavy. And of course, starting back with it supposing to be in 2014, and here we are uh, with launch, I, I should add, it is heavily speculated, and from all the sources I've spoken to as well, that it will not happen in November as currently planned of this year for Falcon Heavy. Um, but yeah, I, I would love for it to happen. But um, I'm going to say no big freaking way. <laughs> and, and hey, it's, it's, it sounds like we're criticizing schedules, but that's, that's part of the business with everybody. So Very well said. It's, we criticize everyone for their launch schedules. You see how much we've made fun of James Webb or even earlier this episode for its uh, planned launch schedules. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tough business. Rockets don't launch on time. They very rarely do. But it, you'd rather play it safe than run the risk of losing vehicle, cargo, or especially lives. So I'm okay with it taking longer. Do I think this is going to happen? Yeah, at least the moon and Mars part. I'm not sure about the point to point. Um, do I think it's going to happen anytime in the next 10 years? Probably not. At least certainly not the next five yeah, Sawyer. There was um, from what I'm I'm seeing the uh, Australia Science Channel that was uh, doing a whole big big uh, presentation on IAC. They were following it very very closely. Uh, they had a panel discussion on there with some really interesting folks. And 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 if you go to uh, AustraliaScience.tv, you'll go ahead and take a look at it. But a lot of the conclusions though that were on that particular that that particular panel uh, made are probably the same conclusions that you just were hearing here. Do I think that this is going to happen within the timelines? No way. Do I think this is going to happen? You can't really count Musk out, but to be a little bit of a you know I'm saying you know yeah I'm from Missouri. Um, as as both you and Mark have pointed out, we have not seen Falcon Heavy fly yet. And that that was announced when? About 2012. It was supposed to fly out of Vandenberg Air Force Base about a year later. 
Um, well, putting strapping three Falcon lines together turned out to be a little bit more of a challenge than anybody really, really thought. And I, if you're talking a, a booster with 31 engines on it, yeah, um, that may also be a challenge, more of a challenge than anybody really, really thought. It kind of looks like um, Elon Musk is trying to disrupt his own company before Jeff Bezos does. What, what do you guys think about about that? Do you think Musk is just trying to go ahead and 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 keep SpaceX at the forefront before you know Jeff Bezos has a chance to skunk him because Bezos is, is trying to get his fleet up and going. He's got plans for uh, for New Shepard, which is going to be a suborbital vehicle, not just for space tourism, but also for a uh, for for science purposes. And now New Glenn, which again is initially for you know tourist purposes, but shoot, you know it it can loft a good sized payload to lower to low Earth orbit, and that will be a competitor to Falcon Nine. And we'll just have to see how expensive it would be to fly a payload on say New Glenn as opposed to flying it on Falcon 9. Do you think there's there's kind of does El, is Elon reading the tea leaves here and saying, "Uh-oh, this is breathing down my neck. I got to do something different." I don't think so. I think this is, you know, SpaceX being SpaceX trying to push the bounds and saying, "Hey, we're going to do something super ridiculously crazy, which everyone's going to scoff at, and then we're going to actually do it and make them eat their words." Which, you know, the I'll admit I did when it came to Falcon 9 reusability with the first stage. Um, but I don't think so. I mean, in other news, you know, Blue Origin has their facility that's getting up and running now at the Kennedy Space Center. And interestingly enough, it's not on the grounds of the actual Space Center. It's just outside the visitor complex. But uh, driving by that at the last launch, it is big. It is coming along. And there will be launches out of Cape Canaveral with that soon. I think it's totally unrelated. And yes, Elon has said that this will be the end-all, be-all rocket to replace everything, Falcon 9, Falcon 9 Heavy, and other rockets that are not SpaceX. I don't think so. Unless he can get the cost down as ridiculously low as he says, which I'm doubtful as, you know, it came to proving with reusability of Falcon and Dragon and learning the costs with that, uh, I don't see it happening that it becomes the end-all, be-all. And if you get something like a you know, New Glenn or even still ULA and Vulcan and things like that that can do the same thing for the most part a little bit cheaper if you don't need that ridiculously huge payload bay that can fit an entire Falcon 1 in it, which is what he said it could. If you don't need that, then go for the smaller option. I think people will still want that. So I don't think it's the end-all be-all, and I think it's separate from New Glenn and, um, and Blue Origin. I think it'd be great to have a couple of different business philosophies and directions both be successful that's what i'd love to see and uh i think elon is is great at coming up with some really uh you know kind of out there concepts it's what he does and uh, he's pretty successful at it or <laughs> he'd be out of business yeah the the other thing too sir and 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 you touched on this a little bit um, is the cost? I saw. I I wasn't as ambitious as you. I I I kind of waited for the the shoes to drop, and and I I watched it at a at a little bit of a more civilized hour at about eight o'clock in the morning, 
and I saw that that little jumble of all the boosters, and you know, of course, the BFR was was now you know the lowest cost out of all of them, ahead of the Falcon even. And I I scratched my head at that one because again, you still need to go ahead and have that large volume of launches ahead. And I don't know. And and using this booster to get from New York to say Shanghai. I don't know. That that's kind of like using a, a Saturn V to get you know from New York to Los Angeles. I, you know what what the devil is the price tag on something like that? And my thought wasn't just the price tag on it. My thought is even if you're going out slightly into the ocean, think about the vibration, the rumble, the sonic booms, yeah. everything that happens with a normal Falcon Nine launch and landing, and that's nine engines. And even for the landing, where it's only two or three, you know, one to three engines firing, you still get the sonic boom from that Falcon 9 booster landing for most of the Space Coast. You're talking at least 10, 15 miles around. Add in 30-something boosters, uh, 30-something engines, <laughs> uh, the, all of that landing. Could you imagine that being allowed anywhere near China, you know, in Shanghai, China, or New York City especially? Not just the risk of, you know, blowing out all the windows from the sonic booms, but... God forbid anything happens. That is a lot of rocket fuel and a lot of engines and, you know, I, but still, it's, those are the questions that need to be asked that he had to leave early um, and couldn't do a Q&A for this one. But those are questions that definitely need to be asked. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, Sawyer, those are a lot of the questions I had in my mind, too. It, to me, it was was kind of overkill. Uh, to to do you know to do that kind of transportation with that big beast. The other thing too is there was no real, I don't know. There was there was no real schedule put in place for the phase out of the current family of vehicles uh, to go to this one. Um, I mean, shoot, we still don't have Falcon Heavy flying. We still don't have um, Dragon Two flying. And I'm wondering too. You've got to go ahead now. And go through the the whole recertification process all over again for the for, for this new booster, and you have to go through the entire recertification process again for NASA's requirements and so on for pilot you know sending astronauts to the ISS and so on. I have a feeling though, by the time this thing is actually ready, ISS will be you know long gone. So I, I'm it really shouldn't even be be part of the equation. I think. I mean, I know there was a lot of laughter in the uh, audience when this big thing was attached to, to the International Space Station in, in, an, in animation format. Um, and I believe Musk himself basically drew the analogy of the shuttle dock to the ISS. It did look kind of impo like an imposing vehicle. Um, and But this one looked like a, a real monster reminiscent of a of something gargantuan trying to go ahead and attack the station or something. And there was a lot of laughter about that. But again, I think that's a pipe dream. I think ISS would be a, be a, a memory by the time this thing's ready. Yeah. And my thought is it's hard to figure out phasing out all your vehicles when you haven't phased them in yet. Again, Falcon heavy still hasn't launched. So how can you think about getting rid of something that, you know, you've got customers that are still paying to use it, that they want, they're <laughs> waiting for Falcon heavy and one hasn't launched yet, and you're already saying, oh, we're going to get rid of it in five years or less. What What do you think if you're a customer? <laughs> yeah, and and by the way, that's us, the, the American taxpayer as well. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and put that in there too, because 
you know, we're still waiting for uh, for Dragon Two to to get up there and going. We still want to get uh, uh, Falcon Heavy going, because I'm sure that the U.S. Air Force is kind of interested in taking a look at what this vehicle can do. I'm sure NASA's kind of interested in seeing what this vehicle could possibly do for uh, some of the projects that that they have coming up. But yet now you're talking about phasing this whole thing out in favor of this one one thing. So I, you know, I, I'm I'm scratching my head. I'll, I'll I'll be honest. I really, really am. What the rationale is of cannibalizing your entire stable for this one thing, and and that's how you're going to pay for it. I don't know. I'm a little bit mystified as to as to the business rationale or the business case for that. I, and that too was not really presented. A lot of details were not really presented at this. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, there may be some heads scratching over in Hawthorne, too, and how, how this is all going to work out. But uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that will believe it when it's sitting on the launch pad. And, and right now, it's a long way away from being a you know, nice little PowerPoint vehicle to, uh, to sitting on, on, on launch pad 39A or, or elsewhere. And here's the thing. I want to be proven wrong. I like being proven wrong in the space industry when we doubt companies or when they come up with these grandiose ideas and, you know, we kind of laugh at the timelines and things like that. Elon, I'm putting it right out there. Prove us wrong. I want, we all want these space companies to succeed. We've said this before for every single launch company out there. We want them to succeed. And if this happens, this will expedite humans getting to the moon and to Mars so much faster than we ever could have imagined, can carry so many more people, can deal with resources better, and, and, you know, carry so much more into even low Earth orbit or geostationary orbit, something like that. It sounds amazing. In theory, it's a great idea. Uh, the only thing is there's still a lot of kinks that have to be worked out, and the point-to-point -point one has many. But Elon, prove us wrong. Like Gene said, when it's sitting on the launch pad and those engines ignite and I'm there and I see it, I will be a very happy person to eat my words. Until then, I'm going to doubt the timeline. Yeah, Sawyer, I'm with you. I mean, one I'll be the first to say one order of crow, please, and and enjoy it immensely. Um, I want to be that person to sit there and say, please, one order of crow. I'm, I'm right there with you. But I'm, I'm also from a place called Realityville, and I see a lot of, um, a lot of points here that uh, still are unanswered, a lot of logistical problems that are still out there and that need to be explained to us, not just to us, but to, to, to your customers. And yeah, I still see the timelines being, well, typical Elon kind of timelines where they're, they're unrealistic. But, you know, again, I, I, I want to be out there on, at, uh, at LC-39A, kind of looking at this thing, going, yep, okay, fine, I'm wrong. I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We'll see. I'm excited to see it, and uh, again, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, because Kat Robinson was actually in the talk, and uh, I was chatting with her a little bit about it, and to get the reaction from the room, and what it was like being there, and Elon Musk's delivery... Uh, there's going to be quite a whole nother story about it that's more than just the uh, contents of it, and we're excited to share that on the next episode when we cover IAC. 
yeah, Sawyer, just before we go, one other other thing I'll mention, because somebody was also there that I talked to. I can't, I really wish I could mention who it was, but um, he, he reiterated the story that he asked somebody and they said, well, I was expecting an iPhone X and I got an iPhone 8. So <laughs> I I that that's that's the way they kind of kind of kind of talked about this 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 uh presentation but uh Cat was in the room she can go ahead and and talk about what the crowd's reaction was what her thoughts were what her reaction was I can't wait to hear what she's got to say After the uh conversation with her immediately after the talk that I had just uh over our little chat group it's going to be quite interesting and uh there's a lot at IAC, so stay tuned for that. Now, the one thing we do have to say before we end is uh, congratulations to the Cassini team, which the Cassini spacecraft successfully ended its 20-year voyage by uh, crashing intentionally into the surface of Saturn. By doing so, not only do they get some spectacular science and some great photos, it also preserves any of the Saturnian moons that may possess life or water or other things that we wouldn't want to contaminate and uh gene i know you'd had an interview with that can you preview that because we're going to have that coming up uh in a later episode yeah sorry i spoke with ocean mcintyre she's a uh, freelance writer uh for um currently she's she's writing for our friends over at spaceflight insider uh and she had written a piece about cassini and about uh, the whole mission in general and uh, we talked a little bit about not only what it was all about, why we were doing what we were doing, why we were disposing of Cassini the way we were disposing of it. Um, again, it was to protect both the, uh, the Saturnian moons, uh, Titan and Enceladus, especially Enceladus, because of uh, what Cassini found. Essentially, Cassini, as, as I've, I've said on this program a couple of times, was sort of a victim of its own success in that, that way. Uh, we discussed a little bit too about the alternatives for the uh, the mission, and and why this particular way of disposing of the spacecraft was was thought to be the best way to end the mission, rather than and than going out to say um, one one of the options was to go out to a um, an asteroid. Another one was was a very 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 slow gallop out to. Uh, out to Uranus, um, it was a mission that one of the uh, program managers were, were saying that you know our grandkids wouldn't even be talking about. So uh, to to go ahead and, and maintain the spotlight on Saturn, maintain the spotlight on trying to learn more about the planet, it was um, decided that that this mode of of dealing with end of mission was probably the best way to go because we. We got insight into regions around Saturn that we never got insight on before. We got insight about what was between the rings and and uh, and the planet itself. Uh, with all of those those final final uh, twenty two passes, we got insight too into the atmosphere of Cassini, and uh, we also talked about Cassini's legacy. Uh, what will Cassini's gift to, to the human species be? And uh, it was a very, very exciting 40 minutes. I had a, a, a wonderful time, and I want to thank uh, uh, Ms. McIntyre for going ahead and spending that time with us. I Absolutely. That's a story we want to save for a very special show, so uh, stay tuned for that. 
a few other things before we call it quits here. Uh, first off, you want to get your name to Mars, you've got about a month to do it. The NASA InSight spacecraft, which is scheduled to launch next year on its way to the Red Planet, uh, you can get your name on board. Uh, for more information on that, uh, you can take a look at nasa.gov, and there will be a link where you can sign up and get your boarding pass. In addition, we also want to congratulate the OSIRIS-REx team, who successfully completed their gravity assist, in which it came back to Earth for just a little bit to help give it its final speed boost on its way to the asteroid Bennu, and in doing so, got some fantastic images of our Earth and Moon, which apparently was very difficult considering those uh, cameras were meant for a lot uh, darker images. So it took a very short exposure and even messed with some of the camera sensors if you looked at it. Um, but get your name to Mars and congratulations to the team over at OSIRIS-REx. The other things that we do have to mention before we go, of course, is uh, since we've recorded a new show, which has been a month, the other ones were pre-recorded, um, we've had some major events that have happened uh, around the world, especially affecting those uh, in the United States, uh, and that includes uh, Hurricane Maria impacting everyone in Puerto Rico. Uh, I have a friend who's there, and um, all the people I've spoken to and the pictures I've seen, it's devastation and it's difficult there. If anyone is able to, please donate uh, American Red Cross or any other organizations to help uh, Puerto Rico relief. Uh, in addition, obviously, there was the horrific shooting that happened in Las Vegas, uh, and we want to send our thoughts and prayers out to everyone uh, who was affected by that tragedy as well. And uh, we're here for everyone, and we're going to stay strong. And uh, space is a great community. The space community binds everyone together of all different ages, races, genders, everything you could think of, all walks of life, all come together in this community. And it's a great community, and we're strong together. And uh, I think that's uh, our perfect way to end this is on our strong note of working together. And uh, thank you to everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And again, to reiterate, um, the um, the Arecibo Observatory is also part of... Uh, Part of the, uh, the the picture over in Puerto Rico, I believe there's I believe there's a GoFundMe uh, deal over over there to go ahead and help the folks that are that are working over at Arecibo to try to help pick up the pieces. Um, but uh, Arecibo is going to be the, the folks over at Arecibo again, and they're going to be picking up the pieces for quite some time at uh, at uh, uh, the observatory. The good news is the damage was not as bad, at least to uh, to certain parts of the, of the uh, of the center as, as a lot of people had thought but uh, again our, our thoughts and and hopes go out to anyone affected by these uh, the natural disasters and you know again with Maria with uh, Hurricane Irma where you know you and and Mark had a little bit of a touch with Sawyer and um, of course to our friends that are still dealing with, with uh, Hurricane Harvey devastation over in the Houston area that are still struggling with that. Again, um, our, our thoughts are with you. And again, if you are inclined, go ahead and, and give to uh, a charity that's working to uh, to help to help folks uh, pick up the pieces. Absolutely. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you soon. We do indeed hope to see everyone soon. And again, uh, we will have updates on all of those launches as well as 
in-depth coverage from the International Astronomical Congress 2017 uh, with Kat Robinson. So you're not going to want to miss the next episode or, well, for that matter, any of the episodes coming up. We've got some great ones on the way, and we hope you'll join us for those. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.